Hello and thanks for listening to RTE Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Nick This week, my guest is musician Brian Finnegan. Hello and welcome to The Rolling Wave. Well, tonight I'm joined on the show by musician and our man, Brian Finnegan, whose music many of you may know through the band Fluke, as well as his own solo work. And Brian Finnegan has just released or recently released a brand new album, Hunger of the Skin. And before we hear from him, here is a track from it. This is Two Trees and Tony. excerpt there from Brian Finnegan's recently released new album Hunger of the Skin. Brian you're very welcome to the Rolling Wave. Thank you very much Eva it's lovely to be here. That track there now Two Trees and Tony two separate tunes that's a gorgeous a gorgeous track can you tell me about it and about Tony and is that Tony who speaks there within within that track? It is yeah that's a that's some uh, uh, vocal content from from Tony ruminating about uh, lots of good stuff and his uh, his childhood and old ways and uh, Tony is my my neighbor he um he was celebrating his 90th birthday not so long ago so um uh, that piece was dead just dedicated to him and uh, his life and um uh, yeah I got him to to uh to join in as well on the track so I was very pleased and proud of that um two trees the first tune in that set was written by a wonderful mandolin player from California called Ashley Broder and um, Tony is Tony is a is a great character. He's he's been my neighbor and the, the, my family's neighbor r- right back. You know, ninety years. He was born in the house that he lives in, and um, he's a very wise and country shaman around here. So you know, I could make a whole program about uh, your tune titles <laughs> and indeed <laughs> album titles, but he he refers to the title of the album in the in the speech content of that track, The Hunger of the Skin. Tell me where that line came from and, and why it is the title of this album. Well, the title of the album, I guess, is, was, it was fueled out of this feeling last year. Um, I mean, there's 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 a there's a long journey into it, but uh, I guess it came to a head last year when the curtain came down on music and the creative arts and the wider world. Um, you know, we were suddenly found ourselves swept off the streets and away from the theatres and out of the markets and out of each other's arms and lives. And you know, it was kind of reflected for me quite poignantly in the life of this old man who was living next door to me because he's fiercely independent all his life and has lived on his own all his life um, since his mother died. Um, but, you know, a steadier flow of visitors every day. N- no one else uh, has. You know, he had people calling with him. His house was a, a Cayley house and 
and there was a reason for that because he was you know he's just such a a great man and has a lot of wisdom and and a very welcoming nature um and suddenly overnight you know the visitors dried up and uh you know he he walks past back and forth past my house every day um he recycles other people's rubbish and he you know, he, he cleans this one stretch of road with the dedication of, of, of a monk, you know, uh, every day himself and his dog. But, um, you know, I, I watched him go past, you know, and I couldn't put a hand on his shoulder. But, I, you know, I could chat to him over the fence. And, you know, it was just really obvious, the loneliness. And uh, um, his aloneness became changed into something else. Um, and... Uh, I realized that it was just a small story and a and a global story that we're a very touching species and we evolved because we touch um, and we evolved because we shared dreams and music and ideas and and uh, it was just that sense of being isolated and cut off that I thought you know how powerful touch is and how hungry skin is you know from little children who can't hug their grandparents right through to the to the elderly on their own so the title of the of the tune came sprang out of a moment um yeah and that was it was just kind of reflected in in many different pieces of narrative that ran right through the album yeah mm. okay well it's a very good um umbrella title for this album and an album coming out of this time but y- you've spent the last year and a half of the pandemic at home in Armagh where this album was born and Armagh of course is where you grew up as well tell me about growing up there was it was it a country or or a town background or or what was the the environment like I grew up in the town I was born in and spent most of my early years living in in the in the city um you know until I was eight or nine I was just part of the community and the the way of a, of a small town it was it was quite sleepy and and safe and Armagh is a great place you know if you're if you're you know we were right on the edge of town so we just had fields and wild wilderness right out through the back door and I guess it wasn't until I joined there was a local sport club uh called the Armagh Athletic Club and uh my father was a was a, a dedicated and very keen runner marathon runner and uh, a fell runner and so we were all taken along to the athletic club when we were eight or nine and um, by complete chance the Vallely family ran the athletic club so Brian Brian Vallely and Ethna Vallely were you know they um, they'd run the sports club for years it was kind of on an orthodox way in the music because after a season uh, sprinting up and down or around a, a wet cross-country field it wasn't exactly floating my boat too much and I uh, I was delighted when there was an alternative so Brian said yeah you should take the kids along to music classes and my sister went first and then as soon as there was music in the house it just seemed to catch fire from there so um from eight onwards it just became it became a kind of magical way to grow up because I was involved in sport and and music and you know anything really culturally rich and vital was kind of going through the valleys so um I just wanted to be as close to them as possible but but you could have been a piper then um Brian or did you have did you start on pipes or did in in the Armour Pipers Club or was it always whistles for you it was always whistles you know I mean if you'd uh if you were if you graduate you could graduate you know the whistle was a kind of entry level 
into the music and uh, most kids would have come to whistle lessons at the very start to see, you know, h how the music would find them. I guess, you know, instruments are very expensive and pipes and boxes and banjos and stuff. So we all played whistle for six months a year and then Brian uh, promoted me to the flute, um, a lovely old Paul Davis flute that he had. And there were kind of enough pipers around, to be honest. Yeah. The, the, the place was full of fantastic pipers and I thought, yeah, I'll just leave those guys. <laughs> I'll cut my own path yeah. with a flute and the whistle. But to be honest, you know, it, it felt right from the very beginning that I would be a whistle and flute player. Um, I was struggling with asthma as a child as well. I had very bad asthma and spent a Christmas in hospital with it. And uh, it seems ironic now that I would, you know, fall in love with a with a, an instrument that would, you know, challenge me in my breath. But then when I look back now, I realize it was I was very I was very in tune with my breath, even though I was it was labored and and, and I struggled at times, but. I kind of think that, that I was present to that that part of me to breathing. I'm very aware of it, yeah. And yeah, quite quite a lot of breathing exercises and stuff. You know, the kind of breathing exercises that most classical flautists would probably learn from the beginning. Mm. But in in traditional music, there wasn't any emphasis on on breath control. Breath control was just something that you 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 found your own rhythm to. Um, later on, you know, it was it wasn't the same practice daily practice with it so but I was doing that daily practice outside as way of uh, recuperation and um, so it just it, it felt right that I was playing playing a wind instrument so I had no, no really no great desire to strike up the banjo well you were very fortunate I think with the Armagh Pipers Club we were the Rolling Wave was in Armagh recently and uh, did a few programs there and they're just still Brian and Ethna Valley and everyone at the, the Pipers Club they're still so passionate about music and, and teaching children aren't they I mean I, I, that hasn't changed at all they're incredible you know like, uh, they're, they're, you know, you talk about your heroes I, I, the, the pair of them still have always been and, and will always be my 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 I aspire, if I could even aspire to be a, a little bit like the both of them, I'd be very content. You know, they're they're so learned and dedica dedicated and um, unwilling to adopt and grow. You know, even even this past year, to take stock of this extraordinary year and the circumstances and move classes and performances online. You know, this is their fifty fifth year running the club, so it's quite it's quite incredible. I love them to bits. In terms of the flute then, once you were up and running with the flute, who were the people that you would have been listening to or learning from? And maybe tell me what led you to this first musician we're going to hear. Well, there were two big moments, really. I mean, I was a huge Matt Malloy fan. I, I can't imagine that there were any young flute players in the land that weren't. Um, you know, not only had he the technique um, and personality, but he 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 was just so cool, you know. He introduced cool to music for me, um, especially the Bothy band, you know. And uh, so seeing him play with Artie McGlynn in the folk folk club in Armagh, I think I must have been in my mid-teens. It just kind of blew my mind, you know, to be that close to witness the the visceral voltage in his playing. And then quite quickly after that, um, coincidentally, just uh, the the band Breton band Cornog came to town and uh, I remember being just as spellbound 
and maybe even slightly spirited away by the plan of Jean-Michel Veillon. There was something in the, way, in the way that he just, just, it could hang on a note that I'd just never heard before in my life. You know, it was like, it was transcendental. So when I'm slightly unsure or slightly adrift in any particular moment or situation, I, you know, if I go back and listen to Jean-Michel, everything's okay. It just eases everything for me. So he's just a, a majestic player. there from Jean-Michel Veillon and I'm here on the Rolling Wave talking to Brian Finnegan. Um, it's probably fair to say that there's a particular style in, in northern flute playing like the fiddle playing you know a bit staccato maybe with the the rhythm um, coming from the breathing there's a lot of sort of percussion in, in the breathing. Was that how you learned at the beginning and how, how you would have played at the start? Um, it's a strange strange one because I, I think that um, I mean you know, there is a very definite northern style and a lot of friends from Belfast, great flute players that I know, they all play in that that style where, where the breath, breath is leading the way. <clears throat> it's a very powerful engine in in that style of northern flute playing. But I kind of, I came from the whistle and then I, I, I got a flute and I was kind of trying to apply the same technique that I was using on the whistle to the flute. And it wasn't flute technique. You know, I... I was aware of that from the start and uh, and then I kind of, you know, Brian Foley was teaching me a little bit of flute at the start and uh, but quite quickly I I started to get lessons from Finton Valley and uh, Finton is just such a, a, a unique and recognisable flute player and he has that engine in his rhythmic style of flute playing. Um, but even, even, I think even then I was... Uh, kind of st- somewhere in the middle between the, the whistle and that smooth way of playing and and stretching the breath. And maybe it, it goes back to breath. I mean, I'm only thinking about this now, but I was kind of stretching my, my phrases so it wasn't quite as that that technique, even though I was using, I was t- taking elements of the Northern style. Um, I didn't feel under any pressure to play in a particular style. And I think also that comes back to the teaching of the Valleys their more emphasis on, you know, the expression of, of the child and letting them find their own voice and encouraging them to have a go and to have a broader palette to draw from. So um, I was listening to a lot of Matt Malloy as well and I kind of think I just, I just found this hybrid that was somewhere in between, you know. Um, but to be honest, you know, I, I, I never really thought of myself as a strong flute player. You know, I, I loved the flute and I was always kind of drawn back to the whistle. And I always found, you know, when I was playing flute that there were things that I just couldn't couldn't reach. They were just slightly out of reach um, that I was doing on the whistle that didn't translate to the flute. So I also, I, you know, I, I said when you're a flute player, you really need to dedicate the time and the, 
the daily ritual of practice. Like it's it's not like playing the whistle, the mm. embouchure and the tone and articulation and all of that stuff. So I was interested because I was listening during the week to your first album that you made in 1993, which was, you know, you, you were kind of only starting out. But it's it's um, it was different, I suppose, to what you might do now, because there were a lot of you know, very traditional tunes on it and stuff, but your sound and your style were already there. You know, there was already mm-hmm. <laughs> Brian Finnegan's uh, personality all over that playing that, that you can still hear now in everything you do. Um, so did you, do you hear that now listening back mm-hmm. or would that be something you'd be listening back to ever? <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, when the party's over, yeah. you hey, you know, I don't even have a copy. <laughs> but, uh, it's on YouTube, um, Brian. <laughs> it's so here. So here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, in fact, when you were talking about the style and the flute playing and the the flute that I used on that album, I guess that was just, there was a bit of a crossing over there because uh, I had been playing a, a wooden flute and then I wasn't, I, I was kind of frustrated with the, the quality of the flute and I didn't have any money to get, to get a, a really good flute. And then I was, uh, was down in Ennis at a session one night in cruises and I just happened to sit down be- beside a man called Patrick Allwell, who was over from the States. Yeah. He's a flute maker. And uh, he was over to see Kevin Crawford and we just got talking and I suddenly heard this flute that he was playing. Um, and it was a bamboo flute, a G, a G bamboo. And uh, I was, I was, yeah, I was like completely amazed by the sound that he was getting. So I asked him and he, he let me try it and I ended up going away with it that night. He gifted it to me. Oh, nice, a nice gift. The, I know it was uh, really. It was a a bit of a game changer. Mm. I I suddenly, you know, I realized that the, the bamboo, the just the the nature of the wood, was so much more alive mm. than the denser blackwood or rosewood. And I was able to do apply some of the technique that I was doing on the whistle on the flute. So that was the f- the first time that I kind of that uh, the flute almost became my way of you know, expressing um, music. I was, uh, yeah, I love those bamboo flutes and st- and in fact, I still have a collection of them. So um, when the party's over was me dipping my toes in flute music, really. I was, I played quite a lot of flute on that album. Yeah. At like 150, my, I was only dogs could hear me. I was <laughs> playing so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Fluke, the band Fluke, which many people many people would know you and your music through Fluke. Um, the band was founded in 1995. I think it was originally called the Three Nations Flutes. Is that right? But but there weren't actually three nations. Is that is that right? No, there weren't. There <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we went along with that for a little while until we were asked too many difficult questions about it, and then <laughs> to justify yourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, Mike. Mike couldn't really pull off a good Scottish accent. This uh, is Mike McGoldrick. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it was just yeah, it was myself and and Mike and Sarah Allen from London, and um, it was just destined to be a, a long weekend of gigs. Um, 
and uh, it was curated by a friend of ours, uh, Becky Morris from London, who kind of knew us all. She was friends with the three of us independently of each other. And uh, she'd kind of heard us in various combinations talking over the years about doing something together and knew it was never going to happen. So uh, took the bull by the horns and organized a couple of uh, London gigs. And then you, I think it'd be, in fact, I think we only did one and we decided that we, we couldn't, we couldn't do the second without a guitarist. <laughs> so we drafted in Ed Boyd and the reaction to that second gig was enough to get our curiosity about maybe doing a few more. It was a, a great reaction. And then, you know, it was just really luck after that because uh, Mike had just won the BBC Young Musician of the Year and as a, a vehicle for the, for the award for that next year, he was invited to play a lot of the big festivals and we were his band at that time. So, you know, fortuitously, we were suddenly playing main stage festivals like Cambridge and Sidmouth and and so it was a really, it was a hit, we hit the ground running. Um, quite quickly after that, we, we changed the name to Fluke. I was just such a fan of Mike's playing, you know, and, you know, we'd played together quite a lot at various flas over the years. And I'd always loved moments, uh, you know, in, in sessions when you got five or six flutes together. Just the power and, you know, the combined power and the timbre of flutes together was just, it, it just like jiggled my molecules. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, getting the chance to play with Mike and, it was it was just so uh, yeah it was a, it was a it was a really thrilling union because uh, he's such a great a natural improviser and I I love to improvise and just kind of explore the the rough outer edges of music and uh, no matter where how daring I was he was always a wee bit more daring so that's quite empowering for a for a musician to have someone else who just as as uh, curious um, and then Sarah came from. A classical, she, I mean, she was already playing in, in a couple of quite iconic English folk bands, the Big Jig and the Burley Works. And she, you know, she loved she loved Irish music and and dabbled a bit in, in playing tunes as well. So, but she, what she brought was just a this other sonic space, you know, because uh, she wasn't trying to compete with myself and Mike. She was just doing her own thing. She'd learn the tune and then she'd just, she'd just leave the tune alone and find the space underneath so it just it's uh, it, it really worked i mean there were a few moments when we kind of stood all over each other's toes but it was uh yeah no i i when he left i i really missed him uh, uh but i it, funnily when when mike moved on to other things it was then really that fluke uh became became a band because we instead of uh, the three flutes out front we kind of the two 
the two flutes stepped back and then John Joe and Ed moved up. So it became an arc. Tortoise and the hair from Fluke there from the album Haven. Brian Finnegan, Fluke was a really successful band. And what made you decide then to take a step back from it all after so long? Um, there were a few different things. If we were, you know, we'd been we'd been working so hard for so long. You know, we uh, we'd got into that cyclical nature of making records. Not not that many, in fact, we weren't we weren't very prolific, but. Um, we were doing a lot of live gigs and touring all over the world and a big touring, you know, going off maybe for three, four, six, seven weeks. And when you're when you're with a band full time like that, no one asks you or invites you to to do anything else because they know that you're not available and you're busy. Um, and so it just becomes it becomes what you do. It identifies you, you know, and we'd made three albums, studio albums and we got to a place where we were wondering about making a fourth and then the first little baby came along. Sarah had Maisie and between kind of stalling on that fourth record out of creative principles, uh, wondering what it was that we could do that would make it any different because it was, we didn't want to just make another album that was a formula. Um, And then, you know, a, a child coming into, into our circle um, it just kind of it was enough to think right this is maybe it's just time to step back because um, we're all really great friends and we love each other and it's you know we don't want to just plow on because we could you know and you could you could keep doing the same thing and you could keep making records and getting big fees for big gigs but I think we were all at a point where we thought you know um, yeah we just want to do it's about the music and it's about the life outside the band as well. So we thought a pause would do us all good. And so it, it transpired because we we just stepped back and then we were able to go off and refresh and rejuvenate and do things that we hadn't been able to do and, and uh, yeah, dedicate our time to children. <laughs> After a break in 2019, the band came back together again and made the album Ancora together. Was that was that a very big buzz to come back and play together again after after such a long break? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think when we when we when we formed Fluke, we were we were so young, and you know we just had our eye fixed on the same star for yeah, a decade and a half. And I think we never lost that wonder and awe about music and sense of the thrill of the adventure of it all so you know when you grew up with people like that and and you're in a band that's a fixed lineup for so long there are things that you don't that are beyond you know technique and arrangements and it's just a kind of it's a conversation between the four people that is operating at a very deep energy level so uh, but on a musical level you get to a place where you know, it's just, it's, everyone knows, as long as they're doing what they're doing, 
then it just works and you don't have to really practice too much. We always kind of people were aghast that we never rehearsed. But it was a it was one of those things that if I if I took a tune to the band and then Sarah would learn it, learn it and find her own path around it to augment it. And then, I mean, John Joe and Ed are just um, just such a power powerhouse rhythm section that um, they were just elevated to where it became a fluke set quite quickly without yeah so they're they're so easy on the head and heart all that it was uh, it was very easy to go back on stage and with very little polishing to, to be back playing in that way but the condition was that if we were going to come back and do gigs that we would have to have something new to say so Ancora was the yeah the result of that Yeah, I, I remember remarking to when I was maybe th uh, t 11 or 12 years into Fluke, thinking Sarah and I having a conversation about, you know, what would happen if a Fluke was to end. And uh, and I can remember thinking, I, I can't really see uh, a life after Fluke. You know, I can't, I can't, you know, I don't envisage how it would be, the shape, because it, maybe because it was felt so safe and we'd been doing it for so long and... We knew each other so well that it, it, I couldn't imagine how it would start again the same. But of course, you know, that's exactly what happens whenever you, if you dig a, dig a field and you just leave it, follow, the wind will carry what it carries and new life will spring. So, you know, after a little break, I, I started to realize that, you know, I needed to write. And uh, so in between, can, in between Fluke ending and the formation of Can. I recorded an album called The Ravishing Genius of Bones and and then to, to gig that, because I wanted to do a few gigs, I invited Ian Stevenson and Jim Jim Goodwin uh, on drums to come and do some trio gigs. And both Ian and Jim had depped a few times over the years uh, for John, Joe and Ed in Fluke. So I kind of knew them at a ringside, ringside seat. Uh, I knew how good they were and uh, so... That's kind of the that was really the start of of Can was the playing of that album with Ian and Jim uh, as a trio, and on on the Ravishing Genius of Bones, Aidan Aidan O'Rourke had guested, um, and so it was just a kind of natural uh, it was a natural evolution that the trio should then we decided that we would invite Aidan to come along. I think our first gig was at the William Kennedy Piping Festival in Armagh. A home gig, no pressure. So uh, it was a, uh, it was, it was so great to play with the guys because they, they came with this again with a, a very different uh, peripheral view of music, um, and where they wanted to take it. They were very bold musicians, you know. They were, there was nothing that they, there was no musical terrain that they wouldn't explore or. You know, we would just follow ideas down a rabbit hole and if they didn't work, we would set them down. And if they did, 
we would it would catch fire. So it was one of those bands where it was a th it was just thrilling. You never quite knew what was going to happen, and and then also having the beef of the kit. You know, it was I'd always kind of dreamed of my foot on the monitor. You know, and like a big rock gig, <laughs> lots of people dancing, and uh, I think that's about as close as it ever got with Can. Composition is obviously a very big part of your musical identity and many of your tunes, of course, are on your albums. Do you remember when you first started writing tunes? Well, I remember exactly where the first tune on how it began. Um, I was uh, in my late teens, maybe 18, 19. And I was playing a lot of sessions and, you know, going to as many different flas and festivals as, as I could. And... I was uh, I was just so hungry. I had a ravenous appetite for tunes, and uh, I guess I was uh, there was something in me that now in, that I would get a floater or a, a sense of a tune that was that was around, um, and I, you know, I was I was so full of kind of momentum and and just wanderlust that it, it took a long time before I I realized that this whatever this tune was this melody that was. It was quite insistent and it wouldn't go away. And I thought, hold on a second, you know, it's like, I don't know that tune. So I went through a process of thinking, well, is it someone else's? And, you know, at the beginning, you don't know what's going on. Um, but I just realized after uh, it was like a fermentation of months that if it wasn't going to leave me alone, I should pay attention to it. And so I started to kind of transcribe it or write it down or record it. And then it grew and grew. It was pretty already formed. And it was a jig. And even when I had it in front of me and realized that it might be mine or it might have come from somewhere else, but I grabbed it, I still was absolutely unsure. You know, it's, it's kind of start scary stuff when, you're, when you start the initial stages of, of, of writing because, you know, you come with the weight of this majestic and very noble tradition that I grew up in, you know, which has you know, a vast repertoire of very um, important tunes. You know, and there's that, there's, you're full, I was full of doubt, you know, what, what, what could a tune of mine possibly add to this, this, this tradition, you know? I mean, I, was, I wasn't really thinking that it would add to the tradition. I was just thinking, who would I play it for? <laughs> you know, and so it was an equally long time before I, I realized that it wasn't, you know, that it was a disservice to the tune if no one ever heard it. So I dedicated it to Ethnavalli and I called it the Donegal Lass. That was me off and running then. There was no turning off the tab after that. And I read, and I think I read in an interview somewhere, maybe with Sarah Allen, where she said when you're writing, uh, like talking about you, that you don't think in bar lines or barns that, bars that you think with the phrase of the tune. Is that right? Or was she right in, in that analysis? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think she probably is. I, I know that any time I ever play a tune, to, a new tune to Sarah, the first thing she is, is she says is, "Where's the one?" Oh. <laughs> um, and um, 
I, I, yeah, I think that um, for me, the process is, it's a kind of a very wild and, and mysterious uh, conversation, you know, and I, it's like, I, I, I think I'm, uh, as the tune is coming, I'm, I'm, I'm receiving a, a story. There is definitely a, a story in, in, in any tune that comes, and, and, and especially a tune that comes without too much effort or grafting or chiseling. It, um, it already comes with an identity and a personality, you know, and it's, it's for a particular thing. And I, I, when I get it, I'm not necessarily sure of what that thing is. That's, that takes longer for me to realize that, that this is who it's for or what it's for or what experience it came from. I, it never crosses my mind. You know, it could be like a week or even a month later that I realize it's even a jig, you know, because it's just, it's, it's just, it's just music. It's a melody. But and underneath the melody is a story of something that's about to reveal. began this conversation uh, talking about your new album Hunger of the Skin and I'd like to come back to it now so it is an album that's uh, as we said born out of uh, the the period we've all gone through over the last year and a half so when the lockdown first hit in March of last year so you were I mean as we've gathered over the chat you were a very busy touring musician and tell me what it was like coming home at that time and the whole uncertainty of of what was going on or, or of what was to come in the air um, yeah, it was just, uh, it was like everyone else, uh, um, you know, I'd, I'd just played a gig in, in Seville with Sean Oog Graham and, uh, it was up in the air whether it would happen or not. And then it eventually went ahead and, but definitely you could, you could feel the trepidation starting to creep in, you know, people were talking about what might be coming and watching the news. And then it was, it was really only when I came home, um, quite quickly after that, it accelerated and even then, in the early days, I, I thought, you know, I was hoping that if stuff was cancelled in March, then it would be, you know, the stuff that was in July and August would be safe. We were all talking, you know, the same thing because we did, we really didn't know. Um, and then it was just a kind of slow realisation that it, that wasn't going to happen. So there was a little bit of a wobble earlier on in the at, on the first lockdown. Um, but I, you know, I'm blessed with a beautiful family a family that I really wanted to spend more time with, you know, and as I said earlier, it's as a musician, you can, can get caught in that cyclical nature of albums and touring and albums and touring their seasons. And you really can't, it's very hard to, to see yourself stepping back out of that and then coming back again. It would be okay if you just closed the door on that chapter in your life and walked away. But, you know, so much happens when you're, when you're not in a year. Um, but it just, you know, I, I realized that I was really desperate for, for time at home, that I wanted to be at home. And then suddenly I, um, quite quickly after the, the initial wobble, I, I realized what a, what a, what an opportunity it was. And so 
I, I really wanted to practice in the early days. I, I hadn't been particularly enamored with my own playing for a couple of years. Um, just, you know, you become a, 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 a concert musician and it's a particular shape. You know how to do the gig and um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're very honed. And so I, 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 in the early days last in 2020, I just, I really wanted to, to practice and it was out of the daily attention to practice that the music started to arrive. Um, and then I realized that all along that that was the space I'd been, been yearning for to, uh, drop down into some deeper vein of writing, but, uh, being at home for every night, it was a kind of really important time because it helped me, you know, it helped me make sense or find, find reason and all the stuff that was going on at that time. And then, you know, to help the kids, my kids understand a little bit also what was, what was happening. I think music and the arts, the creative arts is just, um, it was kind of difficult to, to, I, I know it was an, an extraordinary situation, but I always think in, in those times, it's in the times of peril or emergency when music and arts and poetry is so important. And yet it just seemed to have been dropped, you know, and people, musicians were struggling. And so out of practice started, the, the tunes started to come. And I thought the tunes were just really fueled by this sense of a, a Kind of, I'm not. A, I wouldn't say abandonment, but just slightly an in, in, injustice towards you know creative, the creative world and the creative heart. They were quite um, <clears throat> defiant, <laughs> and they surprised me yeah. because you know a lot of people say they they know my tunes that there's a particular signature, and I, I guess they're right. Um, uh, but even the, these tunes, even they they caught me off guard. They were dissonant mm. and they weren't easy to play. In fact, they were the polar opposite. They were really difficult. And so they asked, they were starting to ask questions that I hadn't really, you know, asked in my writing before. Um, yeah. And I, and I was, I was really, uh, I was excited by it. I, mean, I was happy to jump in and see where it led. Going back to sort of now and then, Lots of people are talking now about what we'll take from this into the future and how things will change or will they go back to the way they were or how do you see it? Do you think, do you see yourself going back to the way things were before or do you see a sort of a different future for you now because of all this? Um, I, I, for myself and, and, and my, my music, I, there's still something, there's something really unique about the energy exchange between a band or a musician and people who are in the room. It's not even that there's an audience because I, I think then when you, when you start thinking there, you're on a stage and there's, there's a, there's a, there's a room listening that there's some space between you. But I, I think when you're playing music and it's the right kind of exchange, you just, it just, everything dissolves and you're in this, this flow, this incredible white light when you become shapeless and formless. And uh, I think Tom Waits had a beautiful way of explaining it. Uh, I was reading an interview that he did one night when he said, last night we all went out to the meadow. And he was asked to explain it. And he said, it's the moment when you're playing music and you uh, there are no walls and there is no roof. And so you just go out to the meadow. Mm. 
and you don't go out on your own because that would be a bit weird but uh, you go out the band are in such a collective union that they just it becomes shapeless and i know exactly what he means it's you know that you can you can you can sit at home and you can write the tunes and you can make a record and you can do the zoom but there's nothing like being in that moment when when everything dissolves around you um it's quite impossible to explain unless you've you've experienced it yourself and as i sure i'm sure you have either um so i that's just something that never gets old and uh so i hope that you know whatever shape things come back in there are there are people who are who know the power in that and who were willing to come back and and engage in it again because i think it's it's so important now going forward that that we uh you know that we have stories to tell and we're only starting to see that all the stories that are coming now from from people it's it's just a universal story right so i think music will really help and coming out and breaking bread together and inviting people around the around the table and i think that a uh, hopefully we're on the cusp of a of a rethink or our on how we live our lives well i'm sure that a lot of people listening to you are pining for just what you've described there and uh, hoping that it's not too far away from us now and uh, certainly that it won't be remote or virtual um but brian it's been a real pleasure talking to you tonight on the program thanks very very much for being with us tonight we're going to end tonight's rolling wave with a track from your new album the hunger of the skin and this is called chase the shouting wind would you introduce this for us Absolutely, and thanks for having me. Eva. It was a real pleasure. Uh, this is a, this is a tune that um, was uh, myself and Sean Oak. We were played a lovely outdoor gig in a in a garden down in Wicklow uh, the, in the late summer last year, and uh, it was really just about the same thing. It's about when when music takes takes flight, and you find yourself up in the blue, uh, looping the loop, and you realise that uh, everyone who's listening is with you, and. Uh, it's about the feeling of being free and and uh, following following the song. So, uh, in fact, it was it was dedicated to Sean Oak. So, if he's listening, this is for you, Mr. Graham. Okay, well, here it is now. Chase the shouting wind from Brian Finnegan's new album, Hunger of the Skin. And thanks to all of you at home for listening tonight. I hope you enjoyed the chat and the music. When our father and Shogati and Tom Hena and Tachtenjahugan Ihua. Thanks for listening to the Rolling Wave podcast. For rights reasons, the music here is shorter than in the original broadcasts. So if you'd like to hear the full versions, you can just go to rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash the rolling wave. And this program was first broadcast on the 9th of May 2021. Till the next time, Guramila Mahagi, Agaslan.